You know, speaking of prayer, uh, March Madness is upon us, as Rodney mentioned a few moments ago. Some of us had our prayers unanswered over the weekend. Others are still praying uh, for things yet uh, to be seen, uh, and we'll see how it goes. Right now, Duke and Virginia are our ACC representatives, and we'll find out the rest of that this afternoon, uh, how that goes. Uh, lots of prayer references in basketball. Have you noticed that? Or really in all of sports. You know, he, he threw up a prayer. They're on a wing in a prayer. They're praying for victory. They're praying for, for this one not to be sick. All, all these prayer references uh, surrounding sports, and especially at, at a time like this with March Madness. I, I would venture to say to you today, there is more to prayer than simply praying for your basketball team. Andrew Murray, I mentioned him last week. I can't, get, I can't get past this, and so you'll have to bear with me, at least this week, if not in the future. But Andrew Murray was born in the year 1828, was a pastor. He was in South Africa. He was an author, and uh, he focused on many spiritual issues impacting the church. And in the year 1912, when Andrew Murray was 84 years old, he and others sponsored a conference addressing what they called, quote, the lack of spiritual power in the church. Why is the church, they said in 1912, so spiritually anemic, so spiritually weak? Why is the church not the presence of Christ? Why is the church not the strong force that God intends it to be? What's going on with the church was the question that they asked and around which they built this conference. And here's the conclusion they came up with. The conclusion was the low spiritual state of the church was caused by unbelief. The low spiritual state of the church happened because the people in the church simply don't believe. Well, they said they believed. They acted as if they believed. They attended church. They went through the spiritual Christian motions. So, so what was it about, about it? Not that they did not believe in Jesus or were not Christians, but there just was a sense of unbelief that what the Scripture said, what God said in the Scriptures actually is true and actually applied to their lives and actually applied to the church in the year 1912. So the low spiritual state of the church was because of unbelief. And then as they dove in further, they determined that the low spiritual state of the church resulting in unbelief was built on a foundation of what they called prayerlessness. The people of God in 1912 simply were not praying. The result was a renewed focus on prayer. The result was uh, other conferences on prayer. The result was uh, books, one of which is called Living a Prayerful Life, which is where I've been dwelling for several months now in this short little book by Andrew Murray, Living a Prayerful Life. This phrase that you see on the screen there has stayed with me. Because I look out across and I hear what others are saying about the church and writing about the church and the state of the church and culture today in the United States of America. And, and my opinion, you may or may not agree, my opinion is the church today is in a low spiritual state. My opinion is that the church today is characterized by unbelief. And my opinion is the church across America today is characterized by a prayerlessness. Now if we turn to John chapter 17, which is our passage today, we find that Jesus, our Savior, was a man of prayer. He prayed. And in fact, John 17 records the great prayer of Jesus, called often the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We think about Jesus' life on earth and his life of all the things that, that were a part of his life, and there are many 
prayer was at the top of his list as a priority, as an activity, as how he spent his time, effort, and, uh, and, and how, he, uh, how he conducted his life. He prayed early. He prayed often. He prayed late into the night. He prayed all night on different occasions. So prayer characterized his life. John 17 is an interesting place in the Gospel of John because Jesus is coming out of, we're still on the night before the cross. We've been here several weeks now, but on the night before the cross, Jesus has, has spent time with his disciples. They've had the Last Supper together. He's washed their feet. He's taught them many things that they would remember and would be key when he went up to heaven. And so now he's, he's finishing that time with the disciples there in the upper room with this prayer that we see uh, recorded for us in John chapter 17. Let me invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to read a portion of John 17. Now in John 17, we can, we can uh, break down this prayer into three sections. Jesus prays, first of all, for himself because he is about to face the cross. He knows what's coming. He knows that when they leave that room, everything changes and, and, and the motion gets set in that is going to lead to the cross. He prays for himself. Secondly, he prays for his disciples. These, these men that have been with him for, for three over three years, and, and he knows they're going to scatter. He knows they're, going, they're confused. He knows there's going to be doubt and disbelief. He knows there's going to be persecution. He prays for them. But then thirdly, in this prayer, Jesus prays for us, you and I. I want to read for you just the first section of this uh, where Jesus prays for himself. First of all, in verses 1 through 8, he prays for himself and he reports to the Lord, I've done everything that's been commanded of me. I've done every, I fulfilled my mission. And now, after saying so many times, the hour's not yet come. It's not yet my time. He says, the hour has now come. It is time for the cross. Jesus, in verse 1 of John chapter 17 when Jesus had spoken all these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we are among a generation of prayerless Christians. And that's exhibited in our seeming unbelief in so many areas. And it's exhibited in the low spiritual state of the church as we read about and hear about church after church after church declining and closing its doors and, and releasing their staff and, and, and failing to, to meet their budget and, and failing to impact their community. 
Our Heavenly Father, make us mindful of the essential nature of prayer. And though we may not be praying now, would you impress upon us a desire to pray? And though we may not know exactly how we should pray, would you impress upon us by your word and your spirit how we can indeed pray? And would you help us to see your eagerness to enter into the circumstances of those who pray, your eagerness to enter into a church, a believer, a community, a nation that will call out to Jesus. Lord, help us to be willing to be the answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed and be with us in these moments that we have this morning for your glory, to hear the words of Christ as he prayed, to consider them for our own lives, and to implement them so that we might be tighter with you, closer to one another, and more empowered to carry out your will, your purpose, your mission in the world as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. So, so Jesus has prayed for himself. And I want you to notice the next passage of Scripture here, starting in verse number 9 and going to verse 19, where Jesus now prays for his followers. He prays that God the Father would keep them and that he would sanctify them or set them apart for his service and for his glory. Verse 9, Jesus prays. I'm praying for them, my followers, the disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word. Is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You know, that I'm not doing justice to this prayer in John 17. I, we, we could make it a multi week or multi month study, and maybe we will at some point. But for now, hearing those words and seeing how it all flows together and seeing the, the, the specific location and time in the ministry of Jesus in which these words are prayed to the Lord gives us a sense of what was going on in, in, in Jesus' mind, what was heavy upon his heart, both that he would be able to, to complete the mission and that his followers would be empowered to be in unity and to go forward to take the mission forward. But then I want you to notice the third section, which is the focus of our message this morning, and that is that Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us. He prays for you, and he prays for me. Notice 
verse number 20. Jesus changes gears and now he says this. I do not pray for these only. Not only for the disciples that are right here. Not only those who have followed me for three years. Not only those who will be here until I ascend up into heaven. But I also, I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. Those who coming forward, they currently don't believe in Christ, but they will. Why would they believe in Christ? Because of the disciples and the followers of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit with the truth of God's word and the command of missions to go out across North America and go out across Asia and go off across South America and go off across Europe and go off across Antarctica and Australia and whatever other continents I may have left out. Go to the whole world and take the gospel. That was the plan. That was the purpose. And for that, Jesus prays. Well, in this prayer for the future believers, which are you and I, Jesus makes three requests of God. I want to focus on those for a few minutes this morning. The, the first request is this. Jesus prays for us to have unity. Jesus prays for you and I to have unity. Notice here in, in verses 21 to 23. Speaking of us, he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. In this section of Scripture, Jesus repeatedly prays for the unity of future believers, the unity uh, for you and I. And so Jesus prays for, that the unity of believers would impact the world. Now remember, the world hates Jesus. The world, Jesus has already prayed, the world hates the believers. But Jesus prays for the believers and the future believers to go into the world that hates them so that the world who hates Jesus might see the glory of Jesus, know the love of Jesus, and believe in Jesus and be saved. I want you to think about that. Jesus prays for the unity among believers to go out into a world that hates him, that that same world might come to faith in Christ, and that he might be glorified. Now, now here, the, the, the church is called to unity. We see here, the church, you and I, we're called to unity. There's a unity between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus mentions it three times in these verses. I don't know if you called it or not, but in verse 21, Jesus prays this, You, Father, are in me, and I in you. We're together. We're one. We're unified. Verse 22 says, as we, Jesus praying to God, as we, Father, you and I, as we are one. In verse 23, Jesus says, I in them, the church, the believers, and you, God, in me, Jesus. So there's a great unity, and Jesus re-emphasizes that over and over. The unity that we are to have as believers is tied to the unity of between God the Father and God the Son. Aren't you thankful God the Father and God the Son are in unity? Aren't you thankful for that? That when God the Father, as it says in 1 John 4, 14, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father had a, had a mission. The Father had a purpose, and He sent His Son. What if the Son had said, well, I'm not in unity with that mission? Then we'd be sunk, wouldn't we? God the Father and God the Son 
are in perfect unity, and we are called as believers to be in that same unity. Three times in, in these verses, it speaks of the unity among the believers. Verse 21, that they, that's us, that they may be, that they may all be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Not just one, but perfectly one. There's a, a great sense of unity in the prayer of Jesus for the believers that would come after he went to the cross, after he was buried, after he was raised, and after he ascended up into heaven. He's praying that we might have unity. Well, what is unity? What does unity mean? Oftentimes we think of unity as, as, as like, like peace between nations. Well, you know, we're, we're not at war with another nation outwardly, so, so we might say we're at peace. But when you're at peace, it, it's not just the absence of outward war, but it is, the, it is the presence of peace and goodwill one towards the other. So what does unity look like in a church? Is it that, well, we hadn't had a church fight this week, so we've got pretty good unity going on. Well, that's not church unity that Jesus is praying for here. He's praying not just for the absence of outward dissension, but he's praying for the presence of peace and goodwill and a union of the mission that God has given us uh, together. Unity means being joined and united in the oneness of purpose and of substance. It's been said about Christians and about unity that in the essentials of our faith, we must demand unity. In the non-essentials of our faith, we must allow liberty. But in all the essentials of our faith, we must exhibit charity. That's a great uh, quote that went around. And it is so true. But the church has struggled with unity from the very beginning. If you read about the church in the New Testament, you read in, in Acts and Romans and Corinthians, you read about Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, you read about the church in Philippi and the church in, 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 in all the other uh, areas where, where, where the church is represented in the days of the New Testament. There was disunity there. And it has gone forward even until today. The church has struggled across the ages with unity. But I want you to notice something in this passage of Scripture that is so essential to unity. And that is that the essential purpose of unity, the essential purpose of us being united is for the salvation of the world. So that believers, uh, so, so that those who are not believers can become believers. So that those who are not Christians can become Christians. There's something about us being united in who we are and united in what we're here for that enables the world to hear and to know the gospel that they might be saved. Notice what it says in verse 21. The unity is that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that the church might be united because that's how the world, remember the world that hates Jesus, the world will know who Jesus is and they'll believe in him when the church is united. Notice also verse 23. Unity comes that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. It is when the church is united that we have the message of love and salvation that will draw in this world that hates Jesus into saving faith and relationship with him. Let me ask a very personal question. It's a question for you. It's a question for me. It's a question for the church across America and really we could say even across the world today. Here's the question I've got. That is, could it be that the world is not being reached because the church is not in unity?
Could that be the case? As, as, we, as we look outward and we say, well, well it seems like the, the ungodliness of our culture just seems to be rising up more and more. The waves of ungodliness seem to be washing across our nation more and more. It seems like over and over and over again that the, the influence of the church and the message of the gospel is shrinking back and shrinking back and shrinking back. Is that because God is not able? No, because God is able. So what is it holding back the impact of the church going out into the world. Could it possibly be that the church is not in a state of unity in the day and time in which we live? There is, there's so much division. There's so much division between the different denominations. Have you, you may or may not even be up to speed on what's happening in this denomination or that denomination and how this denomination disagrees with that one. And, and, and so there's disagreement between denominations. There's, there's disagreement and division between churches. Did you hear about the church down the street? I can't believe they've done that. Did you know anything about that? Did you know about the church across the, across the way there? Can you believe what they've done? Well, I'm just glad we're better than they are. Amen. Tom Rayner of Lifeway Resources, recently retired as head of our Lifeway Resources, uh, recorded, asked for, for uh, Christians and pastors to send him examples of church dissension. <laughs> yes. So he, he published 25, but he had a lot longer list. I'm not going to share all 25 with you, but here are, are part of the list of actual church fights within the bounds of, of an individual church. And they include the color of the carpet, selection of the songs in the worship service, what time church meets, the music style, whether the choir wears robes or not wears robes, what part of the service you receive the offering, which picture of Jesus do we hang in the foyer? Who took that picture, by the way? I don't know. Whether or not the pastor wears a suit and tie or has facial hair. That's a different church now. Let's just be clear about that. One church had a dissension because the youth borrowed a crock pot from the church kitchen without asking. One church got in a fight because they couldn't, just, they couldn't uh, come to unity over what brand of green beans to serve at Wednesday night church supper. One church had a dissension because they couldn't figure out whether or not they wanted those people to attend our church. Another church had a big tiff because the children messed up the church parlor and a thousand other things. Can I say something? These things ought not disrupt the unity of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, unity unites us in our mission. Unity is what pulls us together, and we recognize that our mission is to take the gospel to the world, that the world might believe. And, and churches are getting hung up on green beans and coffee brands and, and so many ancillary things that in the grand scheme of things don't make a difference at all. And while the churches are sitting around arguing over these small things, the world who hates Jesus does not care. 
What's happening down at, at, at New Hope Baptist Church where they're arguing over uh, what coffee stains to, to put on the, on the carpet? Or what's happening down here at this church? Well, they're arguing over this and arguing over that. What do you, how about coming to my church with me? I don't care. The world doesn't care. And they remain unreached because of so much disunity in so many churches and so many denominations across our nation. Well, I would say this. This is personal opinion. That disunity often comes from placing major emphasis on minor things. And minor emphasis on major things. There's a big difference there. What are some of the minor things that churches place major emphasis on? It could be the things like service times, music styles, dress codes, choir robes, coffee brands, you name it. Minor things, but they become major emphasis of a church, and it distracts the church from the major things that the church exists for, which is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and taking uh, the, the message of Jesus to a world that hates him, but with power of unity and the message of love, it brings people to faith in Christ. And that's often not happening because we, the church in America today, is majoring on the minor things and minoring on the major things. Well, I better, I better move on now. Somebody's going to get upset with me in a second if I don't. The second request that Jesus prayed is that Jesus prays for us to have eternity. Not just unity, but eternity. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. Isn't that good? To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Lord, you love me before the foundation of the world. I'm going back to heaven. I want them to be there with me. I'm thankful about that. Verse 3 of John 17, we read it earlier, the first part of Jesus' prayer. He prays to the Lord, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, knowing God, knowing Christ is our, uh, our avenue into eternal life. And so Jesus is praying for us to have eternal life with him. Aren't you thankful for eternal life? Man, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. There, there are so many great days that I've had in my life. I've had great days of, of graduations and marriages and anniversaries and, and, and days of, of children and grandchildren being born, days of, 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 of just trips and vacation, all these wonderful things. But there's also been some tough days. You know what I'm talking about? There's tough days. And none of it compares. The, the, the best days on earth don't even compare to the glory that's going to be in heaven. And the worst days on earth, you take the worst day of anybody ever, and it's worth enduring that if heaven is the end result. This world is not all there is. You know, Jesus talked just a, a couple of chapters ago, if you will, John chapter 14. Jesus spoke about eternal life. He said this in John 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. See, things are tough right now. There's a lot of doubt right now. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff up in the air right now. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Can I say amen to that? And take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You read the the prayer of Jesus, and you'll find that the word glory is a, a major uh, theme in this prayer. In fact, eight times Jesus speaks of glory. And he speaks of it here in regards to heaven. Heaven is a place where the glory of Jesus is displayed. 
And Jesus is praying, Lord, I, I'm looking forward to the day when I am returned to my glory in heaven and these that you've given me, they're going to be there and they're going to see the glory and they're going to know it's all been worthwhile and that it's all true. They will experience that. And so he, he, he had to set his glory aside to come to earth. And after he ascended from the dead, he raised back up into heaven into the glory that he had set aside. We see in this prayer that there's the glory of God the Father. There's the, the glory of God the Son. There's the glory that unites believers. There's this, there's this radiant glory of God that permeates every part of this prayer that Jesus prays, that we might know it, that we might experience it, that it might be displayed through us, that it might be part of what is used to take the world that hates Jesus and brings him to faith in Christ. It's all about his glory with eternity. Now thirdly, Jesus prays for us to have a testimony. A testimony. Notice verses 25 and 26. Jesus prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. See, see, Jesus here is praying that the name of the Lord would be made known in the lives of future believers who will then make His name known to future believers, who will then make His name known to future believers. And you fast forward a couple of thousand years and we're the result of that. Aren't you thankful for that? We're the result of generation after generation experiencing that glory and experiencing that relationship with Christ and perpetuating it forward. The name of the Lord. And John, Jesus, seven times claims to be God by using the name of God that's revealed in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus, seven times, takes the name of God and applies it to circumstances to reveal himself and to let it be known who he is as God. He says throughout the Gospel of John, I am, which is the name of God. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the vine. See, what's going to happen is the name of the Lord will be made known and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and people will see, the world will see not our fusses and fights and arguments and can't figure out which picture of Jesus to hang as if that is even an option and a possibility. They, they won't see those things. They'll see our love and our unity and they'll hear our message and they'll say, I want that. That's what I want. And they will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, the word world here, world, the world that hates Jesus is used 19 times in this prayer. 19 times. And it says here the world hates Jesus, but the gospel is for the world to believe in him. And back in chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world, in the world that hates Jesus, in the world that will hate the believers who follow Jesus. In the world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. If they came after me, he said, they'll come after you. But don't let your heart be troubled. Because Jesus said, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. And now the, 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 the grace of God is to take the message of the glory of Christ out into that same world that the world might come to know Him 
as Savior and as Lord. In verse 26, we see the purpose of our testimony. Why does God give us a testimony? The end of verse 26, that the love with which you love, I'm sorry, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Aren't you thankful? Yes, I am. Aren't you thankful that the message of the gospel, that the message that saves, the message that, that, that sends us into eternity, the message that, that helps us relate to one another in unity, it's a message of love. It's all about love. For God so loved the world before Jesus ever came. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And it is out of that same love that Jesus went to the cross. It's out of that same love that the, that the gospel goes out. It's out of that same love that somebody somewhere back in the day impacted my life with the gospel and your life with the gospel that we might know the love and presence and peace and eternal life that comes from Christ. Now, here's the problem that we have. Here's the problem. Now, I thought about yesterday. I, I just, yes, this was on my heart yesterday. The problem is that so often we deal with spiritual issues in human effort. We often deal with spiritual issues by giving it our best human effort. And, and if we're being honest, I'm going to tell you, I'm the world's worst at that. We see spiritual issues and we're quick to give it a human effort without dealing with spiritual issues with a spiritual effort. Do you know what our most powerful spiritual effort is? It's prayer. It's prayer. And I, I hate to have to say that from 1912 and before till the year 2019, not much has changed concerning the low spiritual state of the church resulting from unbelief, resulting from prayerlessness, still permeates so many churches, so many denominations, so many Christian lives. We want to win the world to Christ. We've got to have this program. We've got to get this facility. We've got to do, do this event. And all those things may be true, but we've got to first and foremost, above and beyond all else, we've got to pray. We've got to pray. Andrew Murray said it this way. Learn from our Lord Jesus how impossible it is to walk with God, obtain God's blessing or leading, or do his work joyously and fruitfully apart from close, unbroken fellowship in prayer with the one who is our living fountain of spiritual life and power. It is impossible to live a successful Christian life outside of our fellowship in prayer with the Lord. This passage speaks to the prayer life of Jesus and its impact upon us. This passage speaks of our great need to pray that we might believe that the world might be reached with the gospel of Christ. I've wrestled with how to close out the service today. I've, I've talked to Al. Uh, here's what Al loves about me. I'll say, Al, let's do it this way. He'll say, okay, that's on Thursday. On Friday, I'll say, well, Al, why don't we change it and do it a little bit this way? Al says, okay, I can do that. On Saturday, I'll send him a text. Al, I don't feel good about that. Let's do it this way. He says, okay, whatever you say. And I talked to him this morning. I said, Al, he said, whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I've wrestled with how to close out the service. And uh, as I'm kind of winging it right now, even then, Al, I want you to come up here if you would. I want Al to sing. Um, it is a song I've asked him to sing. He knows this. 
a verse or so of the song, Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord. As Al sings this song, I want to ask you just to, just to get in a posture of preparation because I'm going to ask you to pray with me in a moment or two after he sings. But, but get yourself in a posture. You can look up. You can bow your head. You can begin to pray. But, but in just a moment, after he sings a verse or so of this song, I'm going to ask that, that we stay right where we are, but that we bow our head and close our eyes. And I'm going to direct us to pray in, individually, direct you and I to pray along the lines of what Jesus prayed for us. When we don't know what to pray, if we stick with what the Bible says we ought to pray for, I think we're in good shape. How would you sing a song of preparation? Speak, O Lord, and I'll come and lead us in prayer.